When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. It's on the 22nd of February, 1943, 80 years ago, a 21-year-old woman stepped forward in the Stadelheim prison in Munich and was executed in front of a brother and her friend. Her name was Sophie Scholl. She was a key member of the anti-Nazi resistance in Germany. She and a group of friends, fellow students, intellectual, curious, religious, had started distributing anti-war leaflets in Munich. She was arrested while so doing. She confessed under interrogation by the Gestapo, and she was tried for treason. The group was called White Rose. In the days and weeks that followed, the execution of three of their leading members, many of the rest of them were arrested, brought in, imprisoned and killed. White Rose didn't really achieve anything at the time. They didn't bring down the German government. They didn't cause a, a great revolt in the student population. And yet now this young woman, Sophie Scholl, is remembered throughout Germany. When we look back at our history, we choose to elevate the stories. We choose to tell the stories of people who we need for the present. The stories we tell each other about our past are about the past, but they're also about who we want to be. We all want to be as brave as Sophie Scholl, who grew up in a privileged family surrounded by people that were happy to go along with the Nazi direction of travel, join the military, join the Hitler Youth, and yet she rejected all of that and took a stand. It's unimaginable bravery. A cellmate of hers remembers on their last day together on Earth before Sophie was taken out and executed that Sophie said, yes, I'm going to die, but, and I'm quoting, how many have to die on the battlefield in these days? How many young, promising lives? What does my death matter if by our acts thousands are warned and alerted? Well, she did alert thousands through her leaflets to what was going on. Nearly all of them chose to ignore the warnings in those leaflets and turn the other way. But she certainly alerted millions of us in the generations that have followed about the importance of taking a stand in the face of evil tyranny. Although when I think about Sophie Scholl, I'm aware of the example she set but would I be brave enough to do the same in similar circumstances? Probably not. 
those are the kind of discussions and conversations that I hope you might have on the back of this podcast. I've got the very brilliant Frank Madonna coming on the pod. He wrote a book about Sophie Scholl, The White Rose. He has been on the podcast many times before. He's written a gigantic two-volume history of the Third Reich. It's called The Hitler Years. A couple of brilliant books, and you'll be glad to know he's got more coming soon. He's one of the most engaging historians out there. He's a brilliant presence on Twitter as well. So please go and check him out. In the meantime, let's hear what he has to say about Sophie Scholl. T-minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And liftoff, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Frank, thank you very much for coming back on this podcast. It's a pleasure, Dan. We talk a lot about the victims of Nazi oppression and genocide within certain groups in Germany and outside its borders, in occupied territories. What was life like in the early years of the Second World War for people like Sophie Scholl, her brother and her friends, for like middle-class white Christian Germans? How much did they know about what was going on? How much would they have felt the oppression of the Nazi state? Well, according to their post-war accounts, they didn't know that much. You know, a lot of them claim they never knew about concentration camps. Or if they knew about them, they thought they were like sort of rehabilitation centers for people who were, you know, not supportive of the regime. So in a way, they sort of turned a blind eye. But for the ordinary German in in the middle classes, you know, life was good. Most of those people who lived in the Third Reich era recall, you know, the the Fiora summers, economy was going well. And they were doing well, relatively, you know, because, of course, they were doing well at the expense of capturing territory. So in that early period of the war, they didn't suffer any privations, really. You know, there was no rationing, for example, like in Britain, only came later in the war for them. So I think that for an ordinary middle-class family in Germany, you know, they were happy, they were content. If you were not against the regime, kept your head down, then you didn't have to fear, you know, being arrested or fearing the Gestapo. In fact, there's evidence that suggests that the public actually supported the Gestapo, felt they were doing a public service. And so a young woman like Sophie Scholl could go to university and and have a, despite news of of war in first, you know, low countries, France, Norway, and then eventually in Russia and the Soviet Union in the East, the home front would have felt sort of quite normal. Yes. I mean, when you look at her letters, they talk about meeting up in Munich in the uh, English Garden, which you probably know it's near the university. And they talk about bringing bottles of wine, nice little Friday get-together after the end of the university week. And it all seems sort of pretty much like today, really. You know, people who go out on a Friday and have a drink before the weekend with their colleagues – very much like that. It didn't seem from reading the letters that it was a, they had a horrible time because Munich wasn't getting bombed at that stage. So I think they had a pretty good time at university. So let's talk now about Sophie in particular. You've looked into it so closely. What was it in her upbringing, her background? Well, first of all, who was she? And were there hints about the principled stance that she would eventually take? I think there were some hints. I mean, she was born in a small town called Forktenberg. The nearest big city is Stuttgart, so it's about 100 miles 
north of Munich. And her father, Robert, who was a liberal, he was the local Lord Mayor for most of the 20s. And she was born in the town hall. And her mother was a, a nurse, Magdalena Scholl. There were four children. There was Inga. She was the older of them. Then there was Hans. And Sophie had a really close relationship with Hans. They were more closer than a, a brother and sister usually are. I mean, some brothers and sisters are incredibly close, we know. And then there was Werner and Elizabeth. I met Elizabeth. She's dead now, but I met her while I was researching the book. And she told me a story of Sophie being at school. And she said that in the class she was in, she happened to be in the same class as her sister, even though she was older than her. She said that the teacher said, right, we've got the test results. And Elizabeth, Charles, you've got to move back in the class because they had them sort of, you know, arranged with the clever people at the front and the the less clever going back to the back. I mean, it, it was like that when I was at school, you know, the clever people were all at the front and then the less clever at the back where they make them fun and things like that. That's where that came from, really, I think, that the back was always making fun of the teacher. So the teacher moves Elizabeth back into the class. Sophie gets up, walks to the back of the class, holds the hand of her sister, moves her back to the front and says to the teacher, I'm moving her back to the front. <laughs> And so there's a sign. I mean, I can't remember ever doing anything like that at school. can't remember ever defying the teacher in such a, you know, an open way. I was a complete coward at school. I did everything I was told and everything that I was <laughs> yeah, told by the cool, exactly. the cool kids, all the teachers. <laughs> so she goes through school. She goes to university. Is that unusual? There's going to university as signified back then as for a young woman. Remember, Hitler didn't like the idea of women going to university and he put limits, severe limits on how many women could go to university. So only 6% of women went to university. So it was unusual to want to go to university, but her brother, Hans, he qualified to get to university by passing the entrance exam, the arbiture as it's called. It's like our A-levels really, but it's all conglomerated into one. He got in. He wanted to become a doctor, which I think is interesting. He wanted to heal people. And she wanted to study biology and philosophy. So she joined him. He'd been there for two years, and she joined in 1942. And when she arrived at university, he'd already started this anti-Nazi resistance group called the White Rose, and he had a group of his friends in it. They were all medical students as well healing people rather than killing people. So they were attached to the German army as medics. You could do a, a kind of a roundabout furlough system where you'd go to the front, then you'd come back for the university terms, then you'd go back to the front and that. So they saw all of They were there in the invasion of France and they were there in the invasion of Poland and they saw the atrocities that were going on in Poland. They'd started this group originally it was Hans and his best friend, uh, Alexander Schmarell, and he was the son of a very eminent surgeon, but his mother was Russian, and this made him... He wasn't exactly pro-socialist, but he was very pro-Russian, and he was very much against the German attack on the Soviet Union. And they had another friend called Christoph Probst. He was the son of a, an independent scholar, a very rich man, 
But he hated the Nazi regime so much that in 1936, he killed himself and he had a, a Jewish wife. So she was in danger of being sent to the concentration camps during the war. And he was very anti-Nazi as well. He was already married, which is very unusual for a student at that time. And he had three children. So that was the nucleus of it. And he also had another friend who was called Willie Graf. And he was a medical student as well. He was a very dedicated Catholic. They were all actually very religious. I mean, people talk about the Scholes in terms of sort of Martin Luther King and secular pacifism. But in actual fact, they came out of a tradition more of sort of, say, Cardinal Henry Newman, somebody like that, the famous Protestant who rebelled against the system and became a Catholic in the 19th century. And she read all the works of Cardinal Henry Newman as well. They were very religious. You see lots of passages where Sophie talks about the Lutheran religion being very cold. And she actually likes the idolatry of the Catholic religion. I think that she probably was going to convert to Catholicism. She was moving in that direction. So when she arrived, they'd already established the group and they'd started to uh, produce leaflets. And she actually shared a flat with her brother at university. And she didn't know, first of all, that he was behind the leaflets. And then she found the second leaflet. In the leaflet, she said, I've got this leaflet, it's against Hitler, and I'll read you a bit of it. She said, um, there's a lot of quotations here from people that you like. <laughs> so in the end, he told her that they were part of this group, and she joined the group then. And the first four leaflets were produced in uh, the summer of 19. 42. Leaflet 1 was written mainly by Hans, and it's more or less a series of attacks on Hitler. You know, it says something like, nothing is so unworthy of a civilized nation as allowing itself to be governed without opposition by an irresponsible clique. The second leaflet, again, had sort of quotations in it. There were quotations from Chinese philosophers. And also, he talks about Hitler's Mein Kampf. He says, Hitler states in an early edition of his book, a book written in the worst German I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> the third one is written mainly by Schmerel, and that one, he talks about sabotage. So now he talks about sabotaging armaments factories, sabotage the local newspapers. Now, this leaflet was very dangerous because in the trial of the White Rose, it was used as evidence of high treason. They couldn't argue. The judge said that they were sort of pacifists if they were arguing to sabotage the whole system. And in the leaflet four, they again attack Hitler. You know, every word that comes from Hitler's mouth is a lie. And also in the third leaflet, they mention the killing of the Jews in Poland. They give a figure of 300,000 Jews are getting killed in Poland. This is a stain on humanity. So after the first four leaflets, there's no real impact of the White Rose because what they do is, sort of being respectable middle-class students, they think, oh, we'll send the leaflets to influential people. And what they did was they went through the, um, the phone book and they selected the great and the good. So they selected, you know, accountant, yeah, he, he'd give him one. Who else? Oh, a doctor, yeah, yeah, he'd be good. A lawyer, oh, yeah, put him in. So they gave the sort of upper middle classes these leaflets and 
The sad thing, Dan, is if you go to the local archive in Munich, they've still got the leaflets sent back with stamps on. About 90% of the leaflets were sent back by the people who received them because they were good Germans. And I think a left-wing resistance figure met them called Harnack, and he said to them, you've got the wrong idea here. You're preaching to people who are the mainstays of Nazism. They're not going to turn on it. You should have leaflets that go more to the working class because they're more likely to be against Nazism than the upper classes. So they started to develop sort of a better strategy of printing more leaflets. You know, they got some funding to print more leaflets and they bought a bander machine. Anyway, you could print a lot of leaflets out there. It was sort of an early version of the photostat machine, really, except it was printed out. They produced 10,000 leaflets of the fifth leaflet, which they distributed in early February. And then the last leaflet came out in February, just after the defeat at Stalingrad. There was a thought of, should they distribute this at the university? Then there was a kind of a fallout between the group. By this stage, they'd enticed their lecturer. You know what I always say when I was lecturing? Don't go for a drink with your students. <laughs> It'll always end badly. And um, he did go for a drink with them. He invited them round to their house, got in close with them, and they invited him to join the group. And he wrote the six leaflets, but they fell out over it because at one point he talks about the glorious Wehrmacht of being betrayed by Hitler. And Hans Scholl and Alexander Schmerl, they say, what are you talking about, glorious Wehrmacht? These people are murderers. We can't put that line into the leaflet. So they have a big fall, and that, and he gets very angry, does uh, Kurt Huber, and he storms out of the meeting. He says, I don't want you to use that. But this is where a little bit of recklessness comes in. You can sort of say, oh, the shawls, they're wonderful, they're martyrs. But you can also say that maybe Hans and Sophie were quite reckless, because basically, he wrote the leaflet. They just ignore that. They print the leaflet that he wrote, word for word, and they take out the bit about glorious... Wehrmacht and replace that with a more derogatory phrase. And then they take it to Munich University. As you enter, you still go to Munich University and see this. There's a huge atrium with light flooding into this area. Scattered around are the lecture halls. When the lectures are on, the halls are empty. So they scattered the leaflets around while the lecture was going on. And at the end of the lecture, by the sixth leaflet, the Gestapo had sort of caught up with the White Rose, really. They'd established a specialist unit to track them down, headed by a guy called Robert Moore. And they did even handwriting tests. They did psychological tests. And the psychological tests said that the person who wrote the leaflet was probably an academic or maybe a priest or a cleric. And they said, you know, he's very sure of himself. It was sort of a description of Hans Scholl, really. Then right next to it did pretty well. But they also said, watch out for people buying enormous numbers of stamps and also watch out on the university campus. An identification came back and said, a girl, a small girl, she's probably only about five foot two, she wears a sort of red overcoat, you know, a bobble hat and a jumper, and she's been buying stamps, lots of stamps. And, of course, that was a perfect description of Sophie Shaw. So they sort of now knew what they sort of looked like, and they'd given warning to the university, watch out for 
suspicious behaviour. So they'd scattered round. Then at 11 o'clock, the bell would ring. That was the moment when they changed classes. Before the bell was ringing, they'd scattered them all around the atrium. But when the bell rang, Sophie, for some reason, rather impetuous, really, there was a clump of leaflets on the balustrade on the first floor, and she went forward and pushed them over. So they cascaded down like confetti. The janitor saw them, went up the stairs and said, you're arrested, you've got to come with me. And they said, why? We've not done anything wrong. They decided to deny it. And they took them to the rector's office and they had an empty suitcase. Sophie was carrying an empty suitcase. So they called for the Gestapo. And of course, lo and behold, Robert Moore says, right, I'm going down. He goes down personally because he's the head of the group that's been tracking them down. He gets to the rector's office and he looks at them and he, he asks them for their identification cards. And he looks at them and he says, oh, oh brother and sister. Oh, right. You know, they're well-spoken, they're plausible, they're middle class. He said in a statement later, I thought these can't be the German resistance because they were calling themselves grandly the German resistance. And he said, I didn't think these were the types who'd be in the German resistance. So he was a bit sceptical. But the sort of uh, ancillary staff had gone up to the atrium, collected all the leaflets, came back, and they put them inside Sophie's suitcase, and they fitted perfectly. So Moore said, at that stage, I had to arrest them. It was obvious that they were suspects. And Hans did a really stupid thing, really. He had a handwritten draft of a seventh leaflet written by his friend Christoph Propst. And he tried to rip it up, you know, underneath his legs while the back was turned of the rector and the janitor. And the janitor saw him again and got the leaflet and it was glued together later and there was another leaflet. And of course, tragically, that of course brought Christoph Props to be arrested purely by this act of impetuosity that had happened. So it was an impetuous act, really, that ended the White Rose. And it was the 18th, they were captured on the 18th of February. That's the date that Goebbels gives the famous speech on total war in the Sports Palace in Berlin. And that's being played as they're arrested and moving into getting their particulars taken down at the Gestapo headquarters. They can hear Goebbels on the radio. You know, he says at one point, do we want to rid ourselves of these resistance figures? And the whole audience goes, yes. And there's a whole litany of questions that he asks like that. Do you want total war? Yes. They're interrogated then by uh, this Robert Moore. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about Sophie Scholl and her execution by the Nazis. More after this. 
to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And how awful would that experience have been for them? Well, the Gestapo had a reputation with the public of being quite brutal and torturing of resistance figures. In actual fact, the number of tortures by the Gestapo was quite low. It didn't actually live up to that reputation, really. They preferred to get information by psychological means. One of the means they used was to capture evidence from, say, it was a house of a person. They'd go to the house, search the house, and then they'd sort of drop things in front of the person they were interrogating. In the case of the initial discussion of the incident in the university, Sophie sort of stonewalled, well, what were you doing at the university? Oh, we were just going there to see a friend. What about the suitcase that you had? Why was it empty? She said, oh, we were taking it back to our mother who lives in Ulm, which is about 50 miles away. She'd been cleaning our clothes during the week, and we'd take a suitcase full of clothes back. So Moore found all this pretty plausible, really. And he said he didn't think that she'd done it. And then, a couple of hours later, a search had been done on the flat they were in, and they found stamps, they found a gun, they found some drugs, actually. They found um, a lot of speed was there, and morphine as well. And Hans, it looks like, was getting a bit hooked on speed, which a lot of German soldiers were hooked on this drug called perversive. But there was also morphine there. What's the morphine there for? Well, Hans said, well, I'm a doctor. I need morphine, you know. And he said, yeah, but you don't take it. <laughs> the interrogator said, yeah, but you don't take it home with you. <laughs> you know, that's surely not allowed. You know, oh, yeah, I'll take a big stash of morphine home. There's some rules surrounding the control of serious drugs, isn't there? So, and then what he did with hands was he threw the stamps in front of him and said, what about them? What do you need all these stamps for? <laughs> and in the end, he gave in, he confessed then. And he tried to take the blame on himself. There is no white rose, he said. I'm the white rose. I wrote all the leaflets. I'll take all the responsibility. Very brave of him to do this, by the way. And so, of course, trying to keep Sophie out of it. What role did she play? You know, she didn't play any role. She didn't even know about it. 
So then, meanwhile, Moore is interviewing her, and she's stonewalling all the way. He says, you better stop stonewalling me. And she says, why? She says, because your brother's just confessed. You are the white rose. And she says, uh, no, he wasn't part of it. And she, and she tries to take all the responsibility for being the white rose and try and get him off. And they don't mention the other people who were involved either. So they try as much as they can. And Moore builds up a kind of sympathy towards Sophie. He thinks she's a good person who's gone wrong. He says to her, if you'd been my daughter, you know, I'd have raised you in a different way to support the National Socialism. And then he finds out that her father has been convicted of a resistance matter of saying Hitler was a scoundrel in front of his secretary. And he spent six months in prison for just saying that. So he said, well, you know, your father, he's already a resistance figure as well. And then it's quite clear, you know, that they've done it. But the German authorities want to make an example of them. So they decide to have a show trial just a few days later. They bring Roland Freisler. He's Hitler's hanging judge. He comes all the way from Berlin to conduct this show trial, which only takes place in the morning of the 22nd of February. So the trial is uh, just a rubber stamp operation. Yes, the idea of the German system was, for the Gestapo, was to get a confession. The person was supposed to confess and also to tell them other names so they could then get other people involved and convicted. That's the way the Gestapo operated. So basically, your only way out, really, with the Gestapo was confess or things got a bit heavy then. Maybe the torture came in at that point, but the aim was to confess, and they'd confess. So how many of them were on trial that day? Only three were actually on trial at that stage. It was Sophie Scholl, Hans, and Christoph Probst. So Sophie and Hans did manage to hide the others' involvement? Not really, Dan, because when they sort of searched their flat, they got letters. So they'd found letters. They found he had a girlfriend. They found other friends. And so they were already on to most of them. They started to get more as they brought in other people, like, you know, Sophie had a friend who sang like a canary. He gave a lot of names away. So soon they had a lot of people waiting in line, if you like, further down the line, who also got executed as well. Like in the first trial, there were three, but then Alexander Schmerel, Graf, Uber, the teacher, they then went on trial and they were executed as well. They actually thought that Willie Graf was the leader because he'd taken a bander machine to the north of Germany and he seemed to be moving around the country quite a lot. And he stonewalled them completely. He actually said, I'm not a member of the White Rose, you know. And he stonewalled them so well, they thought he's the leader. And they kept him on death row for about six months. The bravery of Willie Graf, because he wasn't really that heavily involved, Willie Graf, but he was willing to sort of accept that he was a member, that he did do things for them. And he was kept on this death row for weeks, was Graf. And he said he never regretted opposing Hitler. And he never blamed anyone for his predicament. And I found this deeply moving letter, Dan, in the archives that Graf sent to his parents. It's wonderful, really. He says, I can never say to you while I was alive how much I loved you. But now in these last hours, I want to tell you that I love you all deeply. And I have respected you. 
And uh, he was executed at Saddleheim Prison. And his grave is in St. Johann Cemetery in Saarbrück in his hometown. A number of schools are named after him. And the Roman Catholic Church has acknowledged his bravery as well. I think they were all like that. In a way, they were sort of martyrs. They looked at the future, though. What was interesting, I found, with the Scholes is that they constantly talked of the future that they were not going to be in, but they were saying, we're making a stand, which we hope in the future other people will appreciate once this terrible regime is gone. And in a way, they achieved that aim because a lot of historians say, Ian Kershaw says, he wrote an article saying, oh, the White Rose was futile. It didn't do anything, didn't change anything. But he missed the point, really. It was the legacy that they were aiming at, and that comes through in their letters and diaries. She says, the day of her execution, she says to a, a cellmate, who was a communist, but she was actually a Gestapo plant, she says to her, I had a dream last night. I was carrying a child, and I went to the end of abyss, and then I fell over, but the child was saved, and she said, that's the white rose. The child is our idea. They never were naive enough to think they were going to bring the German government down and start a revolution. They just wanted to sort of put a marker down for future Germans and for us. Yes, that's what people don't appreciate when they look at the White Rose. That that was the main aim of the White Rose was to put down this marker for the future to say, look, take a stand. Take a stand. Even if you lose your life in the long run, people appreciate what you've done. And future generations will say, we'll never not take a stand now. And more people will take a stand. And we can stop these terrible dictatorships. The people can do it. That was their idea that the people can rise up and overthrow dictatorships. It still resonates, I think, today. Well, that's why we're talking about it today. That message is no less important now than it was just back in the context of 1943. Absolutely. When was she executed, Frank? They were executed on the 22nd of February, 1943. She was executed first. She was very silent very dignified. And it's a horrific end because they were executed by guillotine. And this was actually the method of execution in Nazi Germany as well. Still the method of execution in other countries, by the way. You know, France, for example, kept the guillotine well into the 1960s. And Hans went second. But just before the blade fell, he shouted, long live freedom. And then Christoph Probst went third. A very sad case. He had three children. He pleaded in the trial, you know, to be spared the execution for his children. This horrible Freiser said, spare you? You're a traitor. Who wants to have a father like you? So that was the kind of thing that the Freiser did. He just bitterly humiliated them. And Hans said to him, as he gave the sentence, Hans said, you'll pass sentence now but another court will pass a sentence on you. Well, a different sentence came for Roland Fries. I could say it was a, a fantastic end he had. The Allies bombed a courthouse in which he was taking a recess, and a beam hit him, smashed right into his head and killed him instantly. So, hey-ho, that Allied pilot. <laughs> it's just out of interest, Frank. We've had people talking about the... German judiciary and how they sort of got away with it after the war. Do you think someone like Freisler would have faced repercussions or do you think he might have wriggled out of it and actually if it hadn't been for that 
building collapsing on him, being bombed, he might have survived and gone on being a judge. I think you're right. I mean, sadly, I think that the chances are that Freisler would have talked himself out of it. He was a key perpetrator, so you could say that maybe he would have got a sentence if he'd been captured. But remember, 75% of the judges from Nazi courts went on to be judges in the West German Republic, which is terrible, really, when you think about it. The same people who'd given all those sentences, you know, against Jews and homosexuals and gypsies, they remained in the system, you know, after the war. It was a terrible thing. They felt, oh, we can't find judges out of thin air, so let's just take back the ones who had already performed. So it's a terrible thing that those judges actually took a great part in this West German persecution of left-wing people and rebels in that era because people who were rebellious against the West German system, they got very harsh sentences in the West German courts and people said it was because of that Ulrika Meinhof, her father was a judge, so she was rebelling against him. And in fact, she mentions that. The Bader Meinhof group mentioned and they bombed courthouses, but they mentioned that. They mentioned the fact that the judges are all still ex-Nazis why do we remember Sophie Scholl and her brother and the people in the White Rose? They achieved so little, they were executed, so were millions and millions of other people across Europe in the war. And yet now she has become, her name is on organisations and buildings, her images around Germany. Why her? I think the Germans themselves, as time wore on, remember in the early stages, the Scholls were sort of persona non grata, so were all resistance figures. So initially, there wasn't kind of a veneration of Sophie Scholl in West Germany. It only came later. It sort of came after the reunification when Germans were looking for who were the good Germans, who were the people who stood up. The German figure who did stand up in the West German system was Klaus von Stauffenberg. So he was sort of mentioned as a figure, you know, a heroic figure. And he was an heroic figure, but he was very much a traditional figure and there's Problems, isn't there, over, you know, when did he turn against Hitler? All of the streets were named after him more than the Scholls. But then, after the unification, there came a sort of Scholl mania started, really. People sort of latched onto the story. There was a German film made. And when I did my biography, which was in 2009, hardly anyone here knew about Sophie Scholl. So I was telling a story that nobody knew about. And you tell the story or I give a lecture and they go, wow, she was amazing, you know. So I think I had a small sort of role in elevating Shaw as well as this film into this kind of icon that she is now. And I think she fits with the modern age, you know. She looks very modern. The white rose are very modern. And also they're nonviolent. They're democratic. They're free-spirited. They're against tyranny. They're against totalitarianism. And I think they fit into that kind of framework of people who feel, you know, that they want to stand up in the world now in a different way, you know, in a way that is sort of ideologically sort of obsessed in the left or the right and sort of looking for a figure who really represents, if you like, nonviolence in the tradition, by the way, of Gandhi. And, and later on, Martin Luther King was in the tradition of the Shawls and Gandhi. So you could say you could put all those three together. And also you could make the same case about lots of people in history. Lots of people in history get elevated later, don't they, Dan? You know, and at the time, 
I mean, for example, Mary Seacole, unknown at the time, but now she's been elevated through a range of books and documentaries and so on. And Sophie Shaw is that kind of figure. I think she represents, you know, an idea, an idea of liberty, freedom. I can identify with Sophie Shaw. I think that's why this was a strange project for me. Because normally I'd written books about people I hated. <laughs> I'd investigated the opposite side of myself to try and find out what evil was, you know, which is a very interesting idea, really. So this was the first project where I was writing about someone who I admired. So that was difficult. I found it's more difficult writing about someone you admire than someone you hate. Well, we're lucky you did so. Frank, so thank you very much. If people want to read your book on Sophie Scholl, what's it called? It's called Sophie Scholl, The Woman Who Defied Hitler. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast on this big anniversary, Frank. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.